So here's the question. How can e-commerce leaders make sure that they are producing a great product, providing a world-class customer experience, responsibly managing their finances, and still reserve time, energy, and resources for marketing their products? My name is James Sowers, and you're listening to the E-Commerce Insights Show, the podcast that gives you specific, actionable advice for growing your e-commerce business. Every Monday, you'll get a conversion rate optimization tactic that you can implement quickly to make your business 1% better every single week. Every Thursday, we sit down with industry experts to go deep on a specific aspect of running a successful e-commerce business. It's the perfect blend of learning and application, which means that you maximize the value of every single minute you spend with us. We're just as committed to growing your business as you are. So if you're looking for a partner to help you crush your revenue goals, you've come to the right place. Roll up your sleeves and grab a notepad because it's time to get to work. Taylor, thanks so much for coming on the show. Really excited to have you and have you dive into all of the specifics around influencer marketing. I know our audience is chomping at the bit to learn about that. In my mind, it's a bit of a polarizing topic. Like people have either tried it and seen great results and so they love it and they're advocates of it, or they've tried it and it didn't work out and they feel like they got burned or lost a lot of money. And so they hate it and they're staunch opponents of it. So with you being the expert in the field, I'd love to get some insights from you throughout the conversation. But first, maybe we'll start with like, how do you even land on influencer marketing as something that you want to call like your life's work or what you want to focus on right now? Like, how'd you get where you're at today? Yeah, so I tried to be an influencer myself, travel blogger, didn't work out. So I thought maybe I'll just work in influencer marketing. Who hasn't started a travel blog and had a false start? Yeah, it didn't work out the way I wanted to. But no, in all actuality, my influencer journey goes back to college. I started a company with a couple of teammates. I played football at UCLA. They gave me a jersey. I didn't really play, but I was on the sideline with a couple of guys. <laughs> we started an events company. One of the teammates was Peter the Sun, Justin Combs. So he was the face of the company, the influencer of sorts, you'd say. And basically, the events company was just, you know, we'd hosted events, parties. We'd have product placements with companies. They'd pay us for that, ticket sales, et cetera, et cetera. But literally, the only thing that drove all this is Justin Combs' social media. And so right off the jump, just seeing the power of leveraging influencer marketing and using an influencer to really build a business was very intriguing to me. From there, after college, when I graduated, I went and worked at an NFL marketing agency, Athletes First, representing guys like Clay Matthews, Aaron Rodgers, Deshaun Watson. So sourcing deals on behalf of those guys, like Aaron Rodgers with State Farm, was a very interesting world to me as well, seeing how these top athletes can be integrated into very big name brand campaigns and how that worked on behalf of them and what was the objective there. But at the end of the day, Athletes First, I was more so looking to go a little bit deeper into the attribution model of everything. Where can I see uh, deeper insights into what's attributable to these influencers? Mm -hmm. And for me, that was going to Common Thread Collective, paid media growth agency, where you know everything's attributable on the back end. So really gauging and seeing what works when putting out influencer content, influencer campaigns, and seeing the dashboard on Facebook and seeing what really went viral or what really converted on behalf of a brand. And from there, seeing influencer content doing a really phenomenal job with an ad account and across other organic campaigns, we went on our own and started Kinship about two years ago. So that's the full-fledged path. Didn't want to go all the way back to birth, but I did want to give you the influencer journey here. That's awesome. And that's such a cool story and not something that a lot of people can say about how they landed or whatever they're doing for work. I really love that you mentioned the focus on the data and kind of measuring the impact of influencer marketing. And I think that a lot of people listening are going to appreciate hearing that too, because it does kind of feel like 
I don't know, some kind of secret sauce or like black magic or like nobody really knows how it works. It's just like sometimes you put a product in the right person's hand and it takes off. And sometimes you put a bunch of products in a bunch of people's hands and you don't see any results from it. And nobody really knows what makes the difference between one or the other, if this stuff's even working. So interested to dig into that a little bit more with you. I'm curious. So you worked at Common Thread. They had this data-centric mindset around all of the types of marketing that they do for their clients. I think if I heard on a previous interview or read somewhere correctly, like you helped build the influencer team inside of Common Thread. Is that right? Or is that mischaracterizing the work that you did there? No, no, that's exactly right. Yeah, they hired me to build out their influencer department there. And then from there on, they seed funded us just to start our own agency. Okay. Instead of doing internal, seed funded us to start our own business two years ago. And so we still handle all their influencer marketing. They outsource that to us. And we work with, alongside a lot of agencies that are similar to Common Thread as a digital growth agency. So yeah, built out their influencer department. Then about a year later, outsourced that to our business and helped launch us. Awesome. What a really cool opportunity to have to get seed funding from basically your current employer to go do your own thing and then continue to serve them as a client and an agency representative. That's really awesome. And who doesn't want to hang out with like athletes and celebrities all day, right? Because that's all your life is. You're just only hanging out with the famous people, right? That's all that you do. I don't really hang out with too many of them, but we work with a decent amount of them. And a lot of the time, actually, we work and actually recommend people start their influencer programs a lot of the time with micro-influencers. So yes, we want to scale up to working with those celebrities or those macro-influencers mm-hmm. before swinging for the fences. We like to hit a lot of singles to make sure that that investment is a good one. Yeah, well, hold that thought because we're going to come back to those micro-influencers. But before we get into that, I'm curious. So it makes sense being a collegiate athlete yourself with NFL aspirations, I'm sure, because every collegiate athlete wants to go to the whatever the pro equivalent of what they're doing is. Then you go to Common Thread, which is founded or has a lot of professional athletes or former professional athletes on staff. So this is all kind of like a story that keeps telling itself over and over again. And now from what I gather for the marketing material that you have out there in the wild, you still work with a lot of professional athletes, but do you work with other types of influencers too? Like, I don't know, YouTubers or bloggers or anything like celebrities, whatever the case may be like, or do you primarily just focus on product placement with professional athletes or aspiring professional athletes, something like that? We only work with athletes when it makes sense. To be honest, it's a marginal piece of our business, working with athletes and product placement with athletes. Majority of the time, our main focus and then working with influencers and how to identify them is their content creation ability. And that's what I really came to understand at Common Thread, right? So when you're implementing this type of content into ad accounts, you're really getting a gauge of what kind of content works. Does it work well when serving the ads from the brand's page instead of the influencer's page? Does it matter about that copy and the headline? All these things do matter. But if you look at a heat chart, when you look at ads, the main thing that people look at is the content itself. And so what kind of content was really working? Influencers that could sell. And when I say sell, they're creating video content that hits the value props of the product at prospecting or selling a discount or a promo code or some sort of remarketing tactic to get the next step of the customer journey sold. So people that could really articulate that messaging that we wanted to equip them to do, those are the influencers we're really identifying and working with. Full circle there. That can be athletes, but a lot of the time athletes are people that have their following for baseball or for basketball or these celebrities that are singers. They have their following because they're a great singer. They don't have their following because they're great content creators per se. You know, so a lot of these social media people that built their following on their ability to create thumb stopping content in the same line of thought that they can do that organically to build their own following. Our hypothesis, we can do that, repurpose that in our own distribution channels, such as paid media on Facebook, and they'll win there as well. 
So I think that's good to know because I think, you know, the next question I want to ask you is about common misconceptions around influencer marketing. I think one of them is that you always have to work with a celebrity or you always have to work with somebody with a massive following or some kind of big public profile, but that's not necessarily the case as you touched on previously. Like you can work with micro influencers who I'm guessing are people who have slightly smaller followings. Like we're not talking about millions, maybe we're talking about tens of thousands or a few thousand or whatever, probably more than hundreds, I'm guessing, because you need a certain volume or a certain size of audience to get enough touch points to actually sell some products, right? So you need something around that. But what are some of the most common misconceptions you see? People come into your door as potential leads. You start having a sales conversation. You say, well, you're really thinking about it this way, but the way that Kinship approaches it or the way that Taylor approaches it looks a little bit more like this. Like, What are some of those things you have to re-educate folks on? It's an industry with not much education, right? And so a lot of the time, right away off the bat, common misconception is very bluntly, influencer marketing doesn't work. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, I feel like I'm against the ropes at times. I'm like, well, why are we having this conversation? But regardless, I think a lot of the time people, again, will swing for the fences, make that large investment, especially if they have the money. They'll say, okay, we're going to go after X person with no sort of an educated decision being had. So we like to think about it like what kind of I said, micro to macro, spread the net wide across a lot of different influencers with audiences and personas that you think would work. Like what makes up that macro that you were very inclined or tempted to invest in? Like what audiences does that person consist of? What persona does that person represent? Let's break that down into four different categories here. Okay, let's identify three to four to five micro influencers on behalf of each of those audiences and categories and invest in them. What you're going to see is your reach probably is going to be a little bit more than that macro would have. Mm -hmm. Your engagement would be more. Micro-influencers on average have greater engagement. You're going to test and reach more different audiences and personas. You're going to get greater amounts of content, greater amount of posts, and it's probably going to be one-fourth of the cost. So all in all, you're getting a lot more value out of this. And that's not to say like a macro investment. I'm not sitting here and saying macro investments aren't worthwhile. It's just not where you start things, right? So that's very much a misconception. Right. I would say the power of seeding, the lack thereof, is a common misconception. Asking right away for something in return for your product is something I think a lot of people make the mistake of doing. For example, like the mass VMA, we'll send you this product if you give us two posts this week or and then every week thereafter. That is probably one of the most repulsive messages to receive right. from anybody, influencer or not. You're just automatically, it's kind of like, for lack of better words, like prostitution. Here's this, give me that. And it's very transactional. So we are firm believers in starting relationships through giving. Our palms down approach just, hey, we think you're a great representation of our brand. You embody everything we believe in. And we think you're going to absolutely love our product. If you send us your shipping address, we'd love to get this in your hands. And so yeah, take it with a grain of salt. But like we're starting that with just giving. We're going to follow up in two weeks time after they receive the product and engage who posted organically once everyone receives the product to see who became that brand advocate and ambassador for no cost and then follow up with them and see all of them see, would you want to hop on some sort of affiliate program, something more official? But I would say those are two misconceptions, like the lack of knowledge around the power of seeding and starting a relationship on giving and not asking. And two, starting right away off the bat with some macro investment instead of starting with micros and the power of leveraging micro influencers. Right. Yeah. I mean, I can imagine how disorienting it would be to have a realtor come to you and say, yeah, I'll help you sell your house, but only if you promise to give me a referral for two more customers after we're done, right? Like, how would you feel about that realtor? And people are out there basically doing the same thing, trying to find influencers for their product. They're saying, hey, I'll send you a free product that's probably worth 50 to 100 bucks, maybe. And it's like, but you have to post for me two times. It's like, is it really worth 
coming in and trying to start a relationship with what's basically a demand versus starting a relationship with something that's more gratuitous and saying like, here, have this for free. We think it's a good product. We're confident in it. We think you're going to like it because it aligns with something that you put out there as a value of yours. And we just want to send it to you and see what you think and maybe get some feedback from you and just start it that way and then let it kind of blossom into something more if it's a good fit. 100%. I mean, you're tapping into the psyche of people, right? Like when you start a relationship on giving, these people are going to want to do so. Naturally, a lot of the time, these people are going to want to do something in return for you. They owe you something. So instead of starting a relationship by asking them, then they're in this place of like in a mindset right away. Okay, I got to put my negotiation cap on. It's like, oh, wow, how kind. That was really sweet of them to think of me for this. And then you start the relationship in that way. It's so different. And what we've seen is even if you end up having to pay these people, we've seen that you actually get that person's cost broken at at least half when you actually want to revisit conversations with them and tap on them for something more official. Right. I think it's called the law of reciprocity, where it's basically like, if you want somebody to do something for you, this is counterintuitive, but do them a favor first, right? Do them a no obligations favor first. And then they feel because they're a good person, morally obligated to come back and do something in return for you to kind of like balance things out. But I think the research that I saw says that they often overachieve in terms of repaying that favor. So instead of like, if you offer to wash their car, when they come back, instead of just washing your car, they like pressure wash your whole house, right? Or something like that. Or like they wash it and fuel it up or something. And it's like, it's this cognitive bias that we have where it's like, somebody did me a favor. So I don't want to do something equivalent back. I want to do something a little bit more because I'm so thankful that they came out of nowhere and did something positive for me without me asking for it or anything like that. So I think that kind of applies here, right? It's like, you're coming out of the blue, you're saying, I know that you're going to like my product because I've been following you and I'm actually paying attention to what you say and actually care about who you are as a person. So I'd love to send it for you, no strings attached. And all I want to know is like what you think about it in a few days after you've had a chance to try it out. And then that person organically might feel like, oh, this is very kind of them. I actually do like the product. Maybe I'll come back and see if there's anything I can do to work more closely with this company because this person and this brand have both treated me really well to start this relationship off. 100%. I mean, you're nailing. That's exactly what we believe in. I think the last misconception I would definitely have to voice here is influencers' main value add is being their audience as a distribution channel for a brand. That is valuable, 100% for sure, if you find that niche audience. But at the end of the day, it's a very limited audience. And a brand's own distribution channels are much more vast and with a greater opportunity. The main value out of an influencer is their content creation ability. Mm-hmm. The, the assets that they're delivering to your brand to be able to use and repurpose across your own distribution channels. Yes, tap in and leverage their audience on behalf of your brand. But at the end of the day, the main value of influencers are themselves as creators and then repurposing that video content that they're able to give you, again, within your own channels, especially on Facebook. Those audiences that Facebook's able to create across all their different placements, especially when you optimize for conversions, that is going to be much greater placement at the end of the day with their content than having them post on organic social media. And a lot of the time what you see, and this is just kind of the freaky nature of how advanced and sophisticated Facebook's pixel is, is these people that follow these individuals all receive these ads when running it, when running this content. So it's pretty wild their ability to target at the end of the day. But you're also going to get all the other people in the world that don't necessarily follow this person. But when they receive this content, they're likely to purchase or take whatever action that you're looking for them to take. So I think that's another misconception. People get hung up and what's my immediate return on this organic post though? 
And it's like, pause, we can calculate that, but here, let's redistribute this content into these channels as well mm-hmm. and see what kind of lift and performance you get in comparison to the rest of your ad account library. And then also take into consideration, what did you pay in that studio shoot for the other content that you're using within the ad account? Okay, let's compare it against that influencer content you just repurposed here. And then you're getting two sticks, one stone here, organic and paid. So there's a lot of value that I feel as though that's not being recognized when working with influencers or not even being leveraged because a lot of the time people don't even use it in these other channels where that is where the most value lies. I think a lot of people get hung up on reach, 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 right? And when you have these algorithms for Facebook, Instagram, whatever platform we're talking about, it sounds like you're reaching fewer and fewer of your organic followership on posts that you're just putting out on your profile. But I think what a lot of people overlook is not just the level of engagement. So like Aaron Rodgers probably gets thousands of likes on everything that he posts. I don't even know if he's on social media, but we use him as an example. Like he posts something on Instagram, he's going to get thousands of likes, whereas like a micro-influencer might get 300, 500. But like, what else are people doing to engage with that post? Aaron Rodgers' post might just like and say first, right? Like people just say first, I'm the first comment. And it's just a hundred people saying they were first because it came out. But then if you work with a micro-influencer, the comments might be like, tell me more about this product. Like, what's the material? Like, like it's more engaged. It's more interested, right? It's like, they want to go to a deeper level with the person they follow because of the nature of the relationship. Whereas like, if you're going for that macro influencer, that celebrity, that person who isn't a content creator first is a something else first, who just happens to put content out into the world, then there's a different value there outside of just the numbers, right? Like there's this intangible, like more subjective value in how people are interacting with the materials getting put out into the world. You're nailing it. You're able to go much, much deeper with micro-influencers. At the end of the day, people fall Aaron Rodgers and macro-influencers for a variety of different reasons, right? When it comes to micro-influencers, their audience is so dense and so deep. Like, I love that word you use. People follow these people for typically one reason, maybe two. And so you can get really specific in leveraging certain micro-influencers on behalf of a brand campaign that you're running. And so if it's fitness specifically within the yogi space, you can find those micro influencers that are specifically filled with that type of audience and speaking to them on a day-to-day basis with relevant content specific exactly to that point. And so leveraging those people are much more effective to get across a specific message and just use a lot of them as well. And then ultimately, when you add all that together, the aggregate reach, the aggregate engagement, the aggregate everything ultimately it outperforms the macro. But again, this is not a case for one or the other because there is power to having your name and your brand tied to Aaron Rodgers for validity, credibility, mm-hmm. brand lift, et cetera. But if you're looking for results right away, which literally everyone in this day and age seems to want those immediate results, micros will typically outperform. Okay, so we've tackled like kind of the profile of the influencer that you might want to work with. The next thing I'm curious about is the actual content that's being put out there, right? So like what types of formats in terms of videos, photos, user-generated content, like reviews versus just product photos, what has worked well in the past and maybe what's working well now? Like has that changed over the last year or two or even down to the channel? Like when I think influencer marketing, I think product photo on Instagram with the long description, the influencer puts it out there for 10 hours and then takes it down, just weird stuff. And I think that's where a lot of the stigma around this comes from. But I imagine you guys are taking a more holistic approach to it and it's more thoughtful and intentional and personalized And to the degree that like you're switching platforms from Instagram to a video-based platform like YouTube or TikTok or, you know, Instagram stories or something like that. Like, how has this stuff changed over the last year or two, however long you guys have been working on it at Kinship? Great question. 
So a lot of the time we're, we're sourcing video content. That's predominantly what we're doing. Again, just going back to the common thread days, with paid media, video content, far outperforms static imagery on organic and paid. So we're heavily focused on video content. If the brand has a need for imagery, say for emails or landing pages, we'll definitely source imagery, but we're definitely most focused on video content. And so that's unboxings, product tutorials, product reviews, sale, discount, promos, testimonials really flexible to the brand's needs, but how we think about it to give you kind of a framework is when we source a variety of influencers on behalf of a brand any given month, we're thinking, okay, right off the jump, we do a deep dive into their ad account and just see what kind of copywriting, what type of language is being used, what type of content's really working and converting. And so if there's still imagery in their ad account, that's really working. Okay. How can we bring this to life through video content? That's another way we think about it. But the framework that we are Sourcing content is, okay, what type of content do they need at the prospecting level? What type of content do they need at retargeting all the way down to DPA, right? And so is it the prospecting kind of content that's educational and entertaining? Is it the retargeting type of content where you want to offer them some sort of discount deal? Okay, how can we piece together a mashable ad, a quote unquote, where taking bits and pieces of different influencers' content and putting it all together to make your product look like it's everywhere. So you have this funnel where you have an individual giving educational, entertaining type of content. You have that retargeting where there's a sale discount, another level down for retargeting where there's a match will make your product look like it's everywhere. And what this is doing is just generating a sense of FOMO to people that are seeing this content. Like, oh my goodness, everyone has this. How do I not have it yet? And that's really what we're trying to create. And so that's how we're thinking about content when we're sourcing it. All of this content is obviously going to be distributed on organic social as well. But we're also taking into account how are we going to be able to repurpose this through a full customer journey and a funnel using all these people that we're ultimately tapping on to create content. On the organic side of things, for organic activations, we've seen Instagram stories be the most effective just because you have a swipe up action directly to the website. And that's ultimately what we're trying to do, right? We're trying to get them as close as possible to making a purchase. And so Instagram stories has created that. They have greater levels of impressions, greater levels of engagement across the board of any other activation, YouTube, TikTok, et cetera, et cetera. But in identification of people, YouTube's a great place to identify influencers. So a lot of the time we'll go to YouTube or whatever search engine platform you're using in which just right there, I'll recommend Facebook Brands Collabs Manager, free of cost platform. Get on there. It's a great place to actually find influencers. But YouTube is a great place to identify who are the best content creators. And then if they have an Instagram profile, that's where we would leverage them organically on a story. But that's all in all how we identify, how we think about identifying them, why, and the content that we're creating. That's kind of the framework that we are thinking within. That's awesome. That's really insightful. So I'm curious, are there any specific product types that tend to work better with influencers? Like I feel like a lot of time when I see a blatant influencer post, it's always makeup apparel, something like that, some kind of like consumer good that is kind of high turnover, like you buy it frequently or it's perishable, like you use it and you have to replace it, stuff like that. I don't see a whole lot of durable goods out there. I don't know. I mean, I see the occasional wallet, which a guy probably buys a wallet and keeps it for years and years until it tears apart. But like, is there anything that really lends itself to influencer marketing and anything that tends to be a bad fit or tends to be harder to make work? No, that's a good question though. I think right at the jump, what I'll say, it sounds like you've seen predominantly low AOV products being pushed by influencers. Is that correct? Yeah, I think so. And, and I understand that a lot of this is probably like stuff that I've looked at recently, right? So if I'm shopping for my wife, I'm going to see makeup. If I'm shopping for a new wallet, I'm going to see wallets, right? We all got our tailored feeds. Yeah, you know, the, yeah. the social dilemma on Netflix, right? 
We all have the algorithm feeding us content, whatever it may be. But what I would say in response to that, just high AOV products, I think it's ripe for opportunity for influencers, right? One of the biggest struggles of a high AOV product is how do we get these customers to convert? Obviously, with a low AOV product, your time lag length or the amount of time it takes a customer to convert on behalf of your brand is much shorter. It's more of an impulse buy. So there's less mm-hmm. validity or credibility or proof that you need to provide to these people to make the purchase or convert and become a part of your community. With a higher AOV product, people buy things for two reasons, right? Price point. So we're talking about higher AOV. And two, what we've seen, a recommendation from someone they trust. And so that's where we really see influencers come into play and using them for that purpose has shown to be incredibly effective. Lower AOVs for sure, what you've seen a lot of the time, but there's a high AOV products are ripe with opportunity to use influencers to the benefit of the sales of your product. Awesome. So I was going to ask, what are some of your favorite examples of influencer marketing deployed successfully? But since we're talking about low AOV versus high AOV, do you have maybe an example of a high AOV product line that worked well with influencer marketing, maybe that you didn't personally touch, but you see out there in the market? Do you have a story around that of like the types of ads they were using, what the product was, what kind of results they saw, maybe anything come to mind off the top of your head? Yeah. I mean, a couple, honestly. Theragun. Right. High OB product. We worked with Theragun about two years ago. And one of the influencers that they leveraged was, and this was a macro influencer here, was David Johnson, the Arizona Cardinals running back. And his ads did a studio shoot with him, but using that content and having him post organically and putting it in the ad account skyrocketed that ad account and gave a massive lift in performance. So you're seeing, obviously, like we're saying, this running back of the Arizona Cardinals, he was at the height of his game. I think he was an MVP nominee that year using this product for rehabilitation of his body. Nobody's looked to in greater regard than a professional athlete and how they take care of their bodies. And this is a tool that does just that. Getting content around that and him speaking to the value adds of it, it proved to be an incredible case study and it worked very well. So that's one that comes to mind with a high OV product right off the jump. Another one here, and this is more on the micro-influencer level of things, is with a brand named Laserweight. And this is very much so within paid media. Mm-hmm. We haven't really touched on like whitelisting much here yet, but doing paid media with micro-influencers on behalf of this brand, Laserway, we source content of them going into get appointments. So Laserway is an appointment-based business where they have people come in, they do laser hair removal treatment, they do cosmetic treatment, they do facial type treatments, et cetera, et cetera. So we worked with influencers, scheduled appointments with them, and then filmed their experience. So we gave people a visual what does it look like to get this type of appointment? And the influencers walk people exactly through that. So very experiential type content, service type content, testimonial, letting people know what they're in for if they schedule this. And so we took that content, had them post it organically. Again, we kind of see that as the cherry on top. Then we also redistributed that through paid media on Facebook and Instagram with whitelisting ability. What was super interesting for those of you within the audience that know what whitelisting is, it's just your ability to use this content from the influencer's page and serving it from their page instead of from the, your brand page as an ad. You can target their audience. You can target their lookalike audiences. You can target your audiences, etc. When using a micro-influencer, you would think that their audience obviously is pretty limited in its ability to target because, you know, say they have 50,000 people, whatever it may be. So you can reach, you know, frequency levels that are pretty high off lower spends. But creating lookalikes audiences within this campaign proved to be pretty amazing. And so like we've been saying, micro-influencers audience are incredibly dense. 
So when you identify the right person with the right audience that you're looking to target that you have seen to convert on behalf of your brand, building lookalike audiences off of that, telling Facebook, hey, give me 2 million to 10 million additional people that are most similar to these, but are unique to it, that will optimize for the event that we're looking to convert them on. I would highly recommend testing it because at the end of the day, within this campaign, the influencers lookalike audience, which is obviously prospecting when targeting that audience with her ads, our CPA was 40 bucks. That audience converted at $13 mm-hmm. with $15,000 of spend behind it. So it was no fluke. Wow. It wasn't like 50 bucks behind it and this is what it performed at. And you know, this is some case study that we're putting in front of you. Her lookalike audience in paid media performed at over 60% greater than their goal. And so that proved to be incredibly beneficial on behalf of the brand. That's a micro success story with a prospecting audience that outperformed the rest of the funnel. So that's a case study that comes to mind. Like I said, David Johnson with Theragun, that gave the, I think it took their account to a four. And just remember, that's a high OV product with higher costs as well. So a four ROAS isn't like, it's very good, obviously, and they're making great margin, right. but it might not be as great a margin as you might think. Another one is Diff Eyewear. Way back in the day, we were working with them. They were actually kind of going downhill a little bit, and they made a large investment in Khloe Kardashian. This is way back when. This is like their first investment in a macro. And Khloe Kardashian literally what we would say, like save their business. Mm-hmm. It just skyrocketed them from there. And like when I say return, like I don't even know, the exact return is pretty hard to say, but they did a they did a signature line with her. They did a, a studio shoot with her. They went just all out and just threw it at her in hopes of it just converting. And it worked wonders. It really saved their business and took them to a whole nother level. That was their first like touch point with Influencer. And now if you're familiar with Defire and you follow them, they're making influencer investments across the board everywhere from here on out. So that case study really launched them into a full channel that they really take seriously on behalf of their business. But those are some case studies that come to mind. Again, content-wise, at the end of the day, for the people that are listening within it, you just have to figure out what content has worked on behalf of your brand. And then how can we bring that to life through influencers speaking into it? Yeah. Well, that's a great point because that was actually my next question. So you've said several times during this conversation that you start with finding great content creators and figure out ways to make them influencers for products that would be a good fit. So my question for you then is, do you have some specific people with names and faces that we can share with the audience? So like, go look at some of the stuff that they post. And this is what influencer marketing done right looks like. Hmm, Specific names. Like one that I brought to the table here is, I don't know how much this one counts, so I'll share two. One is Nick Bear, and he is the CEO of a company called Bear Performance Nutrition. They make protein powders, pre-workouts, all that kind of stuff that you might be familiar with if you're into fitness. He's the CEO, but he started the company as a company of one, basically. And he started a YouTube channel sharing his life as an army officer while he built this company on the side, right? So he's deployed in Korea. He doesn't have much to do outside of his training. So he starts this company or whatever. And now he's got a YouTube channel where he's doing Ironmans. And like, so he's walking the walk in terms of being invested in his personal health and fitness. He runs a health and fitness company. And every single morning he's on Instagram saying, I'm taking my strong greens powder. I'm taking my strong reds powder. I'm taking my multivitamin all made by my company. Like, so he's turned himself into an influencer. And I understand like the caveat there might be he's the CEO and that's his job, but it is a personal account. It's the Nick Bear fitness account. It's not Bear Performance Nutrition's branded account. 
So, I mean, that's one example. Another one that comes to mind is also in the fitness realm. There's a guy named Max Tuning who has an apparel company and he has a couple of businesses on the side, but he built his following on YouTube from sharing his workouts and his powerlifting and his lifestyle. And he works with another supplement company called Ghost and they wanted to make like a personal flavor for him. So part of his personality is he loves mango margaritas. So I don't know if it's a pre-workout or what it is, but they wanted to make a flavor mango margarita by Max Tuning, right? But the influencer part comes in because he shared the entire process of producing that from start to finish. Like he didn't say what it was going to be, but he's like, Hey, I'm working on a special flavor. It's just for me. I'm sending it back because it's not quite right. Like it's one of my favorite foods. I have like five that you guys know about. I'm not going to tell you which one, but I'm sending it back because the flavor's not good enough. And so like I was following this journey and I'm like, man, I'm a marketing guy and I'm getting sway because like, I don't know how much of this is genuine, right? But I'm going to assume that it is. And it's like, if he's sending it back because the quality's not right, then yeah, I'm way more likely to try it when it comes out because he seems to actually care about the product. It's not just like they paid me 500 bucks to tell you about the this new pre-workout, right? It's like, no, I'm involved in the process. I'm talking about the label, I'm talking about the ingredients. I'm talking about the flavor profile. Like I'm making sure this is buttoned up because my name and my face are going to be on it. So then when it does come out, the people that follow him, I feel like they're much more likely to buy it. So I guess those are two people that come to mind to me as like, you're doing a great job at producing the content that actually sells the product without blatantly being in your face and just like, go buy my thing, right? For sure. For sure. 100%. Without somebody really coming to mind off the jump, I think something that could be valuable though to the audience is if I give a specific individual, like for example, what you're just saying, fitness influencers, not everyone may be inclined to work with a, a fitness influencer per se, but equipping you to identify the right people that create great video content behind your brand is something we can definitely walk through real quick. And again, I would hop on Facebook Brands Collabs Manager. It's their own free search engine tool. So it's not like a grin or one of these platforms that costs 5000 per month on behalf of your business to go identify people and search for them. But what I would do is get on that Brand Collabs Manager to have all the different filtering systems of age, demographic, interests, et cetera, et cetera. What type of profile do they have? What type of audience do they have? All the sort of data that you can actually enter to find and sift through a filter to identify the right people. From there, I would go into these individual profiles on their Instagram. And a great way to figure out and identify if they're great content creators is do they have highlights? And like you're saying, are they putting out content consistently like the fitness instructor or the example that you used? This guy's putting out content every single morning about the products that his brand owns and uses, giving actual feedback. Are they putting out authentic content? Or is it not just real salesy, you know, aggressive type stuff? that makes you feel kind of cringy and uncomfortable. No, it's organic. It's real. And I know authentic is the most oversaturated term within the space, but genuinely, like, does it actually get you intrigued by the product? Can they create content that will ultimately sell and move the needle on behalf of potential consumers that are seeing their content on behalf of your brand? So a great indicator of that, do they have a lot of IG highlights within their profile? Are they putting out a bunch of video content within those? Are they just a bunch of static images? You want to find the people that are putting out a lot of video content on those. And then from there, you can get a great gauge of are they creating great content? So the initial step, Brand Class Manager kind of serves as that initial filtering system for you. And then there's a white glove approach here where you actually got to go into these profiles, check them out, gauge their video content creation ability. But that's a great filtering system on behalf of any brand in the audience right now for their team to actually go and implement. And you'll 100% of the time find people that would be great fits for the campaign that you're running. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like like a lot of things in business, there's no shortcut to success, right? You got to put in the work, you got to manually review the accounts, you have to have some understanding of you know what they've been putting out and what they bring to the table. So there's no cutting corners here. So when you reach out to these folks, like what are you saying? I know you're coming from 
kind of an agency perspective and managing the relationship, kind of being a middleman for lack of a better term. Like you've got a client, you've got an influencer, you're kind of in the middle saying like, Hey, would you be interested in working with them? Let me make the introduction if so. But like, if that's different from how somebody might DIY it right for a little bit until they can't afford to bring someone like kinship on to help out, like if there's a difference there, could you tell me kind of how you approach an influencer maybe as an agency versus a brand owner? Yeah. So our agency typically has a more holistic strategy involved in working with influencers. So it involves seeding, it involves like mass seeding to a lot of people in any given month. It involves tapping on probably like five to 10 careers to actually create video content and actually post on behalf of the brand in contractual form on a month to month basis. And then actually doing the paid media on behalf of the content that we're receiving and if there's any whitelisting going on. So it's kind of mm-hmm. a three pronged approach here. So I guess I would start with the seeding how we start conversations there on behalf of the brand. That's kind of what I alluded to earlier and kind of spoke to, Hey, you know, this brand has identified you as somebody that they would love to see product to. They think you're a great embodiment of everything they represent. We absolutely think you would love the product. We want to give it to you. No strings attached, like start the relationship in all caps, no strings attached. This is how we're starting this thing. Set us your address. We'll get this out to you right away. Yeah. That's how we start the relationship with a mass amount of influencers that we're talking to any given month on behalf of the brand. Because again, you'll see the amount of relationships that are built with great rapport. It's amazing. And the amount of organic social traction that you'll get out of these people free of cost. But out of that pool of people, we typically identify the five to 10 creators that we're going to source to work with on a video content creation uh, basis. And that's typically the second touch point and how we're talking and communicating with them. So maybe that's one to two weeks later after they receive the product, we're going to go through the list of people of who posted about this brand for free without us asking them who out of these people that wanted to receive product, we go in again, a white glove approach, who creates the best content? Who can we actually tap on for those five to 10 people that we can think and see winning on behalf of the brand organically? But again, even more importantly, through paid distribution on Facebook or Instagram, for example, like I've been saying, and that's typically the second touch point of conversation. And at that point, we just say, hey, we see that you love the product. We saw that you posted. And if they didn't, we'll just ask them for feedback. And whoever says yes, we'll love the product. Hey, okay, well, this brand would love to work with you in a more expansive way. Would you be interested? We're looking for two to three videos, one image, et cetera. If they say yes, hey, we work with the brand at that point to create some sort of creative brief, lays out the type of video content that we're looking for, give them as much as they need, maybe an ad example of what to look for as inspo, provide it to them, boom. And then we give the brand two rounds of approval on that content, ensure quality every step of the way. Right. But that's kind of how the sequence of conversation and a little bit of the process when working yeah. with us and how we conversate with these influencers. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And between the sourcing the influencers or going out to find them through the Facebook brands manager and then managing the relationships once you do the outreach and the product seeding and kind of tracking who's producing the best content, which one is getting the most engagement or the most return on investment. Like this is very quickly starting to sound like a full-time job, which I know is the value proposition of what you guys do. (laughs) So that's good. I mean, because that means that like, there's not only value in what you do, but there's value in pursuing influencer marketing in general, which I think is really good. So when somebody shows interest, you find the right pairing. How do you structure that relationship? Are you structuring it in a contract format? Are you offering payment up front for a certain number of posts? Are you offering compensation like in an affiliate model where they get a commission for every sale through their discount code or their personal code or whatever? Like, I know this is probably varies from account to account, but in general, like, are there two or three kind of structures to these relationships that you're using in terms of incentives and compensation and the stuff that the financial stuff that people care about, right? That's important. 
Yeah, no, great question. So the seeding campaign, we'll just go back to this example, the three-pronged approach. Mm-hmm. Like seeding, then you have content creation and organic posting as the second tier, and then third tier, we're running the paid media event. So in seeding, we're definitely onboarding a lot of these people onto after, again, we start the relationship on giving, we follow up two weeks after they receive the product, who posted organically, who gave positive feedback, who became a brand advocate. At that point, we're onboarding all of those people onto affiliate. We're actually, we're sending out an affiliate program to them, Mm -hmm. giving them some sort of commission fee, obviously, on any given sale that they receive on the content they're pushing on behalf of the brand at that point. So we're going to try to onboard all of those brand advocates that we saw engaged. So on that point, no upfront fee for those people, obviously. But again, on those five to 10 people that we're sourcing any given month for actual content, for them to deliver us two to three videos for that brand to own in perpetuity, so forever, and to use across all their distribution channels with full rights to the content. Yeah, at the end of the day, you need to pay upfront fees for that. Because if you think about it, these are full stack content creators. Think about them as an in-house studio person, all in one. If you're going to get from five to 10 influencers, two to three videos each, an image, and then we get all those assets in different formats of like one by one, nine by six, that's like 50 assets in total, right? Even more of them. What would you pay for that amount of assets for a studio shoot? Mm-hmm. A decent chunk of change. And so that's what people need to start. And, th- and that's without the organic posting. Right. So you're going to use and own all this content on your own channels. So how would you think about paying for that type of content, that amount of content through a studio shoot? And then on top of that, you get this organic distribution from people with clout over their audience. So when you pair those two together, yes, when it comes to those sort of deal structures, we always pay upfront fees and contract them to make sure that we do get full rights and ownership on behalf of the brand for that content. Yeah, I think that's a big source of the fear or the reservations around influencer marketing is like people who are trying to do it themselves. They're reaching out to folks on Instagram through DM or whatever that they like. And they're saying, hey, how much does it cost for product placement? Or like, what's your rate for product placement? Like, that's probably not the best way to start a relationship in general, but we've covered that already. But it feels like if I'm a brand owner, I can see them saying, well, the influencer has all the power, right? They have the audience, they have the reach, they control the account. If I send them the product, like they could put something up for an hour and take it down and I'm out of my money, right? Like there's no balance and it doesn't have to be that way. I understand that. But the key thing that I'm hearing from you is like whatever relationship you engage in, ensure that you get the repurpose rights to all of that, right? Like you own the creative assets that come out of this relationship and you can repurpose those on your branded account, not just through the influencer. And that kind of helps to tip the scales back toward your favor, right? It makes it feel a little bit more equal in terms of like who's getting the mileage out of this. And happy to share, like anybody in the audience that reaches out to you after this, I'm happy to share the contract that we use as well with influencers. So these five to 10 people that I'm saying that we contract on behalf of brands on a month-to-month basis, there is always a contract. It says full ownership of the content, full distribution rights, licensing rights, et cetera. But it also says, hey, you know, you need to leave this up for more than 24 hours or whatever time length. If there's a, if it's a feed post, you can put all the way up to in perpetuity. It has to live there forever. You can never take it down. That can be in a contract. You can say that, hey, you can't post about competing brands for the next six months or a year or the next two weeks or a month, whatever it may be. Obviously, these stipulations will increase certain costs, especially if it's exclusivity, but they can all be included in the contract to eliminate these fears, worries, concerns. That's what a contract's for at the end of the day. So happy to share that with anybody that may be interested in it. So just make sure you contract them with the right language at the end of the day. So if somebody wants to 
kind of experiment with influencer marketing, learn it themselves before they bring someone like you on to help them out. And let's say they want to get started in the next quarter, the next three to six months. And let's take Black Friday off the table. That's top of mind for everybody. Maybe not the best time to dabble in influencer marketing, but maybe it is. But let's not let that influence your your advice, right? Like, let's just say the next three to six months, I want to give this a fair shake. I want to run it myself first to kind of learn the ropes. And then once it gets to be too much for me, or once I prove the validity of it or whatever, I'll bring in a tailor to help me out and I'll outsource that and I'll contract with you to do it. How can somebody take that first step today? Like, where should they start? I'm guessing it's Facebook brands manager, find the right influencers. But then what comes after that, right? I love it. Yeah, I know. I love that question. At the end of the day, that's what our company is trying to do. We're trying to educate as many people to take the right first step in influencer marketing. Again, you get so many people that say influencer marketing doesn't work after they try it the wrong way the first time that they enter into those waters. So love the question. What I would do is exactly what you just said. Get on Brand Clouds Manager. Start identifying as many people as you possibly can that you think would be great fits to send your product to. Obviously, this is a different amount by brand and by how expensive your product is, AOV and cost of it. So, you know, you take Kalo, for example, a silicone wedding ring, that's a company that we work with, their cost to produce the product is 20 cents. You know, they can afford to send thousands of these out per month. Now, with a high OV product with costs of, you know, 100, 200, $300, sitting in the same position. But what I would say is allocate a certain budget based on the cost of your products. How much are you willing to give? Whatever you're comfortable with, just do as much as you can and you're willing to invest in. Okay, that's how many products you're willing to give. Let's go identify that amount of people on Brand Clouds Manager. Okay. And what you're probably going to find, you want to probably identify two times that amount, maybe even three times if you want to be really safe and reach out to these people. Because not all these people that you reach out to are going to want product and get back to you and respond, etc. So just get to the amount of people that sends out that amount of product. Boom. From there again. That's how I would start. Two weeks time after they receive the product, gauge all the posts that took place, follow up with all of them, regardless if they posted or not, who became a brand advocate there. And at that point, I would revisit conversations with these people, maybe choose five of them in total, get two videos from them to give you an actual practical step here, get two videos from them, an image, IG story posts. Yeah. And if you want to do any other posts, I would start there because it's going to keep it the most inexpensive. IG story placements are also the most effective, but it's also like the most inexpensive. So I would also start there and you're also going to get a great gauge. Give them a UTM link to be able to track the performance of it in your Google Analytics. So give them a UTM link, boom, from there out of the five or 10 or however many people you actually activate in that way, gauge who performed the best. And at that point, use two to three of the top performing people from that campaign, get more content from them, get whitelisting ability, run that stuff in paid media, boom, you got your first micro campaign and you're off to the races. Right. And then when you're sick of doing it yourself and you want to get back to the rest of your business, the logistics, the accounting, then you come call Taylor, right? That's how that works. All the good guys though, but... Yeah, that'll be a great starting place for sure. Yeah, that's a great playbook to follow. And I hope at least a few folks that are listening go out there and run that because I think it's worth their time and their investment. When you're doing that, this is the last question I have for you from the the main body of the conversation. When you're doing that, do you have any favorite tools or resources or templates that you're using to physically manage this entire campaign, right? Like, so we talked about on the front end, you're using the brands manager to find the influencers, but in the middle, are you using any tools? Like some things that come to mind for me are, are you using a tool to manage the email outreach? Cause I know you can automate that. You can add, you can like build a sequence and then add a bunch of name email addresses and it'll run on its own kind of, and then you can step in to manually follow up. Are you just using Google sheets to track like 
likes and comments and stuff like that to measure engagement? Like whatever your tech stack is that somebody might be interested in who's listening, like what would you recommend as far as tools to manage this end-to-end process of finding influencers, identifying the ones that you want to work with, managing the posts or whatever, and then even to the degree that you want to get into how you physically like actually compensate them and send the money or where you host the contracts, like whatever you want to share in terms of your tech stack and your tooling. Uh, I'd love to hear about that. Yeah, I'll give you the full thing. So right off the jump for identification, we use a platform called Tagger. That's just a more expensive investment for a robust search engine. And Facebook and Brands Class Manager, it's just new. They're in the beta version of this. It's just free, right? So that's why I'm recommending if you're not looking to make some sort of robust investment, we typically take that cost off of the plate of the brand and absorb it ourselves. But for free, that's where I would start to identify these people. So from there, we use GMAS, and that's just for email. And that's how it reaches in that automated system of seeing who would want to be on board. But I also definitely DM all these people on Instagram when reaching out. So it's paired with DMing. That's not, you can obviously copy and paste, but that's not like automated. There's not an automated tool for that per se. From there, for contracting purposes, we use Right Signature. For payment purposes, to onboard them as independent contractors, we use Gusto. Let's see, what else are we using here? What about like performance tracking? So obviously the platforms will have their own ad tracking, like Facebook ads manager and stuff like that. But so when we see all these people, so a really cool platform that, and again, if you're going to do Instagram stories, it's called Mighty Scout. And so basically Mighty Scout is a platform that enables the brand to see. And again, because we're not asking for anything when we send these products out, but we want to gauge who's posting organically. And so if you put all the, the list of people within Mighty Scout of who you seeded, basically it's going to pull anybody that posts about given brand. And all these people, influencers, will typically tag the brand if they talk about a product, if not always, unless it's the super like low-key organically within their story, if they're like intentionally speaking about the product, they're going to tag your brand. So basically, whether it's on Instagram story or an IG feed post, this Mighty Scout will pull in all the content that was posted on behalf of your brand within the window that you placed if you put all those people that you seeded within. And so it's an incredibly valuable tool and you get to see the immediate value of it. You get to see the amount of impressions, engagements, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it's a pretty inexpensive tool at that. So that obviously frees up the time of like manually going into every single one of these people's profiles and seeing, did they post? Did they not? Oh my gosh, did they post an IG story even though it's down after 24 hours and you missed it? Dang. And you get to see the level of all the data that you want to see. So that's an incredibly valuable tool that we definitely are seeing to be of value and what we recommend. And then for affiliate, we onboard them onto Refersion. That's the best tool that we've seen for affiliate. And that's obviously on the organic side it tracks anything you'd want to see and it automates payments as well within it. You can create influencer landing pages on there. It makes it incredibly seamless to communicate with influencers that onboarded on your affiliate program, give them content to post that you'd want to see posted, get to see what kind of revenue they're driving, link clicks, time on the website that they're driving, anything that you want to see analytics wise on the organic side, Refersion is a great tool to leverage. And then on the back end through paid media, obviously through your paid channels, you're able to see Facebook dashboard is probably one of the most robust dashboards that exists for the amount of data that it's able to showcase to you. So those are all the tools that we are seeing as of the most value to see what kind of return you're getting or ROI and your influencer investments. 
That's awesome. Take that, pair that with the playbook you went through before and people have got the recipe for launching influencer marketing in the next quarter. So thanks so much for sharing all that in so much detail. And of course, like we'll link all those things up in the show notes. I don't expect anybody to pull over on the side of the road and type in refersion on their phone so that they can bookmark it for later or anything like that. Yeah. yeah so maybe I'll get into a few listener questions, just a couple here, and then we'll uh, wrap up by letting folks know where they can learn more about you and more about kinship. So the first one comes from uh, David and David wants to know, is there an incentive to using your creative assets and providing it to the influencer or asking them to create their own. Now, from what I've heard from you say today during this conversation, you pretty much rely on finding the right influencers who are already content creators to produce their own material, promoting your product or your service or whatever you're going for. But I do think it's kind of interesting to say like, hey, do you create your own assets in-house? Like maybe you're already doing a product shoot or whatever and you distribute that out to your influencers and say, hey, here's some raw material for you to work off of. Feel free to use this in a future post. Like there are two aspects that I think. One, do you prefer one over the other? And two, if you do decide to produce your own material and distribute it out, is that something that a tool like Refersion would handle? Like just send this to all my influencers at once, right? Like this zip file or whatever with all these photos and videos, like just send it to them so they have the stuff to work off of. You would be able to do that in Refersion. Just to answer that right at the jump. But my answer to that question is always have the, again, the main value out of influencers is their content creation ability. So you want to leverage them as the creators of the content instead of you giving them some sort of content that you created internally to give to them as it. Because then at that point, you're valuing them as distribution channels, right? And the main value, I, yes, the distribution channel is kind of the cherry on top, but the main value is their ability to create content on behalf of your brand with your product or service or whatever it may be. So I would say 100% all the time, get them to create the content on behalf of your brand and leverage that into the distribution channel. But I would always do it that way instead of you creating the content and giving it to them. Okay, awesome. That's very insightful. See, next question here comes from Sean. And Sean said, my definition of an influencer equals an affiliate that refuses to be paid on a performance basis. Now, even if we remove, I'll call it the snark from that, right? So I think what Sean's probably thinking, and I'm not going to put words into his mouth, but this is my interpretation, is that typically people think of an influencer as somebody who gets paid up front to do a certain amount of posts or create a certain amount of assets, get that out to the audience, leave it out there for a certain amount of time, and basically drive eyeballs and theoretically sales from that versus an affiliate who is out there producing content and inserts a dedicated link or a discount code or whatever in their material, whether that's a video or a blog article, and everybody that buys through that link, the affiliate gets a commission return. So it is kind of pay for performance there. Whereas I think what the misconception is that you pay an influencer up front and they get the money no matter what, right? So I think that's where Sean's getting at. And that is an interesting question of why one versus the other. But based on what you've told me today, it doesn't sound like it's always pay up front and hope for the best, right? Like there is an avenue where you seed the product. Maybe you have an engagement where there is some compensation up front for a certain amount of assets, but then you get them onto like an affiliate program where they end up earning a commission and it becomes more of a long-term relationship. But I'll let you share your own perspective on that. I thought that was a really clever definition. There's so many different terminologies in how people, you know, coin influencer and affiliates and content creators. Some people say influencers are dead, they're content creators. Yeah. And it just kind of goes in pair with these people and the value that they bring is their content. But to speak to your question directly, I visualize them one of the same. I think, again, that definition is clever. But what I would say is, a lot of time it's both. Like if you take a strategy that we've been identifying, right? You start on giving, asking, onboard people onto affiliates, but then we're tapping on certain people to create content. And basically the, to speak to his definition of it, the difference between the two is right, affiliates are people that are pushing content 
spreading the net really wide, right? And you're kind of like making money while you sleep and you're not as intentional with all of it. Yeah, you can send them all bits and pieces of content, like you said, through reversion of stuff you want them to post or like, hey, this is the campaign we're running. Like if you can post about it, awesome. It's very like hope for the best and it's a game of numbers. And that's kind of how affiliate is. And then out of all the people that you send this to, okay, if we can just get 10% of the people to post, we can expect this type of return, these type of results. That's kind of how affiliate would work. Where contracting them to actually give them upfront payment, you can be much more intentional on in what you're getting back. And so there's much more of a process like, hey, you get approval on the content that they're producing on you. You're not really getting that with affiliate. like, And you're not going to be able to handle that labor. The amount of affiliates that you have on your program to give two rounds of approval on the content that they're going to post on behalf of you organically, that would be an absurd amount of work. Where, hey, if you actually give an upfront fee to people for five to 10, you can be much more intentional with the creative briefs that you give them, much more intentional with the type of content they're giving you to get approval on it. Okay, what's the messaging of this? So... That's where I see a big difference in the two. And at the end of the day, they're kind of one of the same to me. There's things that these people will do as affiliates for free of cost. And then when you contract them and you want to contract them, so you have ownership over the content. So they have it up on their feed for a certain amount of time. So there is exclusivity. There is approvals on the content they're giving you. There is a creative brief that creates intentional content that you guys are looking for and need. And so through that sort of upfront payment and contract, you can ensure that quality where affiliates, again, is kind of like, hey, this is a numbers game. We're going to mass send this out, try to get as many posts as we can, try to get as much organic traction and hope we get a lot of ROI because there's no upfront fee for you guys to do it. And I would 100% build that out as much as you can on a month-to-month basis. I'm a big proponent of it, but I'm also a proponent in intentional creation with influencers and that entails upfront fees. Yeah, I think you laid that out beautifully. And, and this actually, it made me chuckle a little bit. And I've seen this several times over the last few weeks. It's like, it's funny because theoretically, somebody who launches an e-commerce company, like they're an entrepreneur and they took on some level of risk to get this thing off the ground. But then when it comes to something like influencer marketing, they want a guaranteed ROI right away. They don't want to risk anything, right? Like they're super risk averse. And maybe it's because they took on that risk to get to where they're at. And so they don't want to lose everything they built. But it just, it always surprises me. Facebook ads, influencer marketing, content creation, like whatever the case may be, a lot of entrepreneurs, I think, are hesitant to invest up front in kind of a leap of faith, I guess, is what I'm looking for there in terms of like, I'm confident that we'll be okay if we lose all of this, but I think we'll get at least some of it back, right? Like it's not going to go to zero. And so it's just funny when I see a mentality that is so risk averse from people who have gone out of their way to start something from scratch and do something that is inherently risky. And I get it at the same time. I mean, influencer is such a jaded space for many. And you hear, you know, we're in such a oversaturated market of all the gurus, quote unquote, of the world. And then being kind of let down once they actually buy into what's being sold to them. And so I don't think there's a marketplace that is kind of known for that any more than influencers. So I get the hesitations. I understand them. Mm -hmm. But that's why we're also here to do things like this, where we can give people the tools to win and get their first single and get off to a great start. So that's my hope for you. Awesome. I think you've done a great job with that. I have one final listener question for you. This comes from Deb. And his question is basically around budget. Like what is the cost to execute a campaign like this? And maybe the way that I would phrase that is like, how much should a company be willing to invest to 
reasonably test out influencer marketing and know whether or not it's a good fit for them right now, right? So like beyond just the cost of the products to seed or the influencer fees or the tools, like if you just had to put maybe a range on like, you should have a budget of 10 to 25,000 to come work with Kinship. And is that per month or per quarter or per campaign or whatever? Like, do you have some kind of rough ballpark figure where it's like, if you're willing to risk this much financially to give it a shake, then I think you're ready. If not, then keep your head down, build your business through other channels. And when you get to this point, think about influencer marketing again. I mean, to give you how we see for that five content creators, we typically, so just give you our budget. And obviously our budget is something that entailed our costs, Mm -hmm. but it's like 10K to work with five influencers to get two to three videos, one image, IG story, and then like a creative edit on top of that, like that mash flag we were talking about. So it's like six deliverables and then all provided in one by one, nine by 16. So again, you're getting to 50 plus assets as a total delivery. Again, I would think about that is what are you paying for a studio shoot to get that type of content? And this content from what we've seen and what led to this when I was at Common Thread, influencer content outperforms a lot of the ad account library already. So it's a high performing asset what would you be willing to pay in comparison? And this doesn't take into account the organic distribution at all either. So we cost 10K there. And so, I mean, if you take into consideration our costs, I mean, it's going to be obviously cheaper than that without giving you like our actual margins, but figure it out. But again, if you start by seeding and which we typically do with our clients, you can typically get lower price points. And so where that might cost 10K, if you started the relationship right away on asking, Mm-hmm. It might just be 10K right there, but we all always get it lower than that and our ability to start relationships on the right foot, on the right note, giving, not asking, you can find that cost and that price point go down. And then on seating front, our price point typically is just $20 per head of identifying and reaching out and communicating. And then from there, onboarding them onto people that receive product and then onboarding them onto affiliate programs to become brand advocates. Typically do a minimum there of some sort based on the AOV of the product. If it's like a high AOV product, obviously it's going to be less. If it's more, typically around 300 people even. So that's kind of how we do it. And then on paid media, typical market rates of like 20% based on spend, 50%, 10 et cetera. But for people that are just looking to start, again, I would just start with a seeding that comes down to your costs of your product and then onboarding them onto an affiliate program. And if you can just start with three people, one person, I would just budget like a thousand bucks tops per influencer that you're working with. If you want to get like one video or two videos and then an IG story post, it probably wouldn't even cost that much. But if you want to go in with a conservative budget, that's what I would do there. Okay. So what I'm hearing in that maybe is consider this a long-term experiment, right? Like something you're frequently trying in, start with small numbers, start with one person. Then if that goes well, add a second person. But if you start with one person and a small budget and it doesn't go well, try not to write off influencer marketing at large because some of the numbers I'm hearing you throw out is like, we go find you 300 potential influencers and we seed the product there. And then we look at how those are performing and we choose 10 to whittle down from there. And then from that, we get five. And those are the people we work with long-term and have really rich relationships with. So like, if we're talking about numbers like that for doing it reliably in an agency format, like... If you're not doing that, don't expect to see outstanding results. Maybe you will hit a home run like the Kourtney Kardashian story with Diff Eyewear. Maybe you will, right? But maybe you won't. And don't be disheartened. Like, Keep trying, keep iterating, keep experimenting with creative assets and the types of influencers you work with and maybe the incentive packages or whatever. But 
keep dabbling and just make this part of your standard operating cadence because eventually you're going to get to a scale or you're going to find that right combination of budget creative and influencer or the person you're working with. And it's going to show some positive results. At least that would be my interpretation. So I don't know if you, would you say that's fair for somebody who's going to DIY it for now? It's incredibly fair for the people that understand like Facebook ads or IG ads. If you just run like one static image on behalf of your brand and that's the one ad that you're running, you don't find success. Are you just going to throw it all away and say Facebook ads doesn't work? No, no, no. The name of the game is creative performance and a diverse set of ad account library. In the same line of thought, you need to spread the net wide on influencers. See what kind of content works on behalf of your brand paired with influencers. See what type of personas paired up with your brand with influencer works the best. What type of audience is targeting that you're going after with the influencers that they, what type of followers they have. All of this together, you're trying to spread the night wide, as wide as possible to figure out what works in the back of your brand. And once you find those, you narrow it down from 300 to 10 to 5 to 3. And those become brand ambassadors and long-term partners of your brand that create consistent content for you and post on a month-to-month basis. You're going to try to find people that have high affinity with those people. And there's ways to do that as well, like on Brands Plasma. If you type in the person, give me, you know, spit out you know, the 100 most similar people. That's something that you can 100% do. And so once you do that, you just rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat. Yeah. You're building out that affiliate program and you're just slowly filtering it through and identifying those brand ambassadors that are going to be your flag bearers of your brand. All right, folks, Taylor gave you the playbook for how to do it step-by-step. He gave you the tool stack. He gave you the budget recommendations. And he's doing more of this on Twitter. He's at Taylor Lagasse. Got that right, I think, on Twitter. He's doing these massive threads. I've seen a few of them over the last few weeks, and they're getting a lot of engagement. So I love them. So besides following you on Twitter, Taylor, like where can folks go to learn more about you, get more of these insights in their inbox or in their social media feed? How can folks stay in touch after we say goodbye today? Yeah, Twitter would be the great best place or just go to our website, kinship.co. That's K-Y-N-S-H-I-P dot C-O, not dot com. And then I'm also on LinkedIn, just Taylor Lagasse. But Twitter would probably be the most bang for your buck there. That's where I'm definitely posting every three days or so a pretty long thread on different strategies and approaches to get your influencer program off the ground. Yeah, I'm a follower. I'm loving it. And I remember Taylor saying, if you reach out to him and ask for some of those contract templates, I think he said he'd provide those. So I definitely take him up on that if you want to give this a try and get the templates. So Taylor, thanks so much for coming on the show today. I learned so much. I'm kind of a novice when it comes to influencer marketing. And I feel like I'm intermediate now, right? Like I'm not an expert. I got to get in there and actually do the work. I leveled up today and that's all thanks to you. So thanks so much for coming on the show. And uh, hopefully we'll have you back for another round a little bit later on this year, or early next year. Appreciate you, James. Thanks for having me. It was a great time. Hey everybody, this is James again. And before you go, I just wanted to invite you to join one of the coolest things I get to work on as Director of Marketing here at The Good. It's called the e-commerce insiders list, and it's a private version of this podcast feed that gets you access to tons of additional bonus content, like extra interviews, Q&A sessions, website teardowns, and anything else we can dream up. It doesn't cost you anything but your email address, and we promise to always respect your inbox. This is just our way of forming stronger relationships with our listeners and making sure that we produce content that is actually valuable to you and to your business. If you're interested, you can join the rest of the e-commerce insiders by going to thegood.com slash podcast and dropping your email into the form at the top of the page. We'll follow up with directions for how to access the private feed and you'll be off and running. Like I said, this is one of my favorite things that I get the opportunity to work on because it lets me interact directly with e-commerce founders and leaders just like you. If you're interested, I'd love to see your name pop up in my notifications. Until then, keep an eye out for the next episode of the e-commerce insight show and we'll talk to you soon.